Amen. You may be seated. If you'll turn your Bibles with me this morning to the second chapter of First Corinthians. Second chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. I'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As we read, remember, as always, this is the Word of God. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God." That is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this great privilege of standing before your people to open your Word. How I pray your blessing upon this time together in it, that you as always will be our helper and our teacher. And by the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit that you would illumine us to see and understand the truth before us that you would give us the grace to apply it to our hearts and to our lives, that more than anything else you would enable us to trust more deeply in Jesus and be more like him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, deciding to what to preach on this morning was a, um, a difficult decision. So difficult I started thinking about it uh, months ago. This is an important Sunday in my life and the life of this church. The last 13 years, I've had the privilege, the opportunity, and the blessing of standing behind this pulpit and bringing to you the truths of God's holy word. Some of you are here this morning from First Presbyterian Church in Louisville. Had the privilege, the opportunity, and blessing of bringing God's word to you for 16 years. Even some here from my first church in McGee when I was just a beginner in this journey of being a pastor and I'll struggle through the sermons of a, of a true beginner. <laughs> Why in the world you come back to hear another one, I don't know. Close those chapters of our lives in McGee and Louisville many years ago, but today I close another chapter, a more final chapter. Over the last four decades, I've asked myself often, what is a true Christ centered ministry? What does that look like? After all, that is the purpose of the church and the primary goal of the minister, isn't it? Aren't we all to be all about Jesus and pointing people to him? Aren't we to be teaching and preaching that Jesus really is the way, the truth, 
and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. You know, preachers are all different. We have different styles, different gifts, different interests, different aspirations. But every true minister of the gospel should have the same priority. And that is to preach Christ, to point people to Christ, and to make clear there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That's what Paul is saying in our text this morning. You know, this is a very personal passage. Something of Paul's own personal testimony as a minister of the gospel. He's reminding the believers in this church in Corinth of what was most important in the gospel-centered or Christ-centered church. And he did that by reminding them of the character of his own ministry while he was there among them in Corinth proclaiming the truth of God's word to them as a minister of the gospel. You know, Corinth was a, was a troubled church. And as Paul wrote this letter to them, he was concerned about some of those problems and that had developed in the church after he had left to go minister in other places. And one of their primary problems was a lack of unity. If you go back to chapter 1, in verse 11, Paul says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren. I was informed by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. And his exhortation to them because of that is found in verse 10 where he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. See, the reason they had become so divided and the reason there were so many quarrels among them is because they had lost their focus. They had begun to major on the minors. They lost sight of what was most important. They, they turned their attention to things like who had been converted by which evangelist? Who had been baptized by which apostle? Who was a member of a certain group or clique? You see, instead their focus should have been upon the cross of Christ. Their greatest concern should have been about the preaching of the gospel. But they took their eyes off of what was most important and other things became more important to them than the gospel. And as a result, those divisions and those quarrels began. That's the way it is in the church. Once you begin to take your eyes off of what is most important, once you take your eyes off of the gospel and off of Christ and put it on things of lesser importance, put it on each other or on circumstances or situations, inevitably, People begin to disagree. And strife and quarrels and disunity arises. You see, for a church to have the right focus, it needs to be what Paul calls a foolish church. Go back with me again to chapter 1. Where in verse 18, Paul declared this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then look at verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. It's ironic to me that so many churches today do everything they can not to be a foolish church. Many churches today try so hard to be like the culture around them, watering down the truth, becoming more and more politically correct, doing everything to be absolutely inclusive so that no one will consider them to be old-fashioned, out of date, or out of touch. Most of you know that I've always tried to keep the churches that I've pastored to be foolish churches. Churches that are focused on the gospel. Because I believe that's the key to having a healthy church. And in our text this morning, Paul is saying that was his perspective too. He's reminding the believers in Corinth of how he conducted his ministry while he was among them. And he's reminding them of the focus that he had and the priorities that he set. You know, sometimes the Bible gets real personal, doesn't it? Hmm? Ever, ever read through the Bible and think, man, I think that's speaking to me. Well, this, this passage is very personal to any minister of the gospel. It's a passage by which we can tell if our ministries have the same focus that Paul's had. I would say it leads us to ask ourselves if we have the right focus and the right priority. But even as Paul talks about himself and his ministry in this passage, I believe the main point is to show that the success or the blessing or the growth or the expansion of the power of the church does not come from the preacher. It doesn't come from whoever serves as the minister. This is a text that puts men like me in our place. That reminds us of our primary task and helps us put things in their proper perspective. And it's a text that helps you. Keep the man who stands behind this pulpit in the proper perspective also. It comes through Paul's own testimony of himself here as a minister of the gospel, as an evangelist, as a pastor to these believers in Corinth. And he talks about three things in this passage. First, he talks about his message and especially how he delivered it. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That is, Paul didn't go to Corinth trying to make a big impression about his skills in oratory or his great eloquence. He didn't go there trying to influence them by the mere power of persuasive speech. Now, I want you to understand, Paul was no slouch when he came to a debate. 
Paul could stand his ground with the best of them. But you see, Paul knew that was not the way people were brought into the kingdom. Now, part of the reason for Paul saying this is because Corinth was a very heavily Greek-influenced culture. And the Greeks were known for their eloquent speech and their persuasive argumentation. They were known for their interest in philosophy. They respected great rhetorical speakers, people who could, with great uh, ability, expound upon their particular philosophical views. People would come far and wide to listen, to sit at the feet of these philosophers and hear them go on and on so eloquently about their philosophical positions and expound their ideas. Well, Paul's point is that he didn't come to Corinth that way. He didn't come to Corinth to be like the Greek philosophers. He did not adapt his preaching style to the style of those outside the church. He didn't come there with eloquent speech or a kind of profound human reasoning they were accustomed to hearing. He didn't proclaim the testimony of God to them that way. He didn't try to reason them into the kingdom, argue them into believing, or persuade them to believe his message through some great rhetorical skill. He didn't talk about all kinds of extraneous peripheral things that really didn't matter. No, you see, Paul was willing to be called a fool by those outside the church in order to get the message across to those inside the church. He focused on one thing and one thing only, and he never got sidetracked from it. He says in verse 2, I did, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How could, how could Paul have said it any more clearly than that? He says, I determined to do it. I made a conscious decision. When I came to your church, I made a conscious decision to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know nothing among you except the importance of realizing that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and embracing that gift of grace by faith. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul... Paul taught other things too. You know, we were talking to the Ephesian elders, the elders of the church in Ephesus before he left there to go to another place. He said to them, I did not shrink back. I did not hold back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul did proclaim the whole counsel of God. He didn't back away from teaching what he believed the people needed to know. And yet, the preaching of the cross undergirded everything else that Paul taught to the people of God. The cross. And the Christ who died on the cross was the glue that held all of his teaching together. Paul's message was simple, was clear, and it was bold. It was clear in that no one could miss the point. It was simple because he spoke about the profound truth of Christ's death on the cross. And it was bold because he did not back away from that essential part of scriptural teaching. I beg you, 
I beg you, don't ever tire of hearing about Jesus and his death on the cross. Throughout my ministry, I've determined to know one thing and one thing only among you. And it is that central truth. And every message I've preached, I've tried to bring myself around pointing to Jesus and to the cross. Telling you of the necessity of trusting in him for your salvation and living for him for your sanctification. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon was asked one day why his sermons all sounded the same. And his answer was this. I take my text from wherever I find it and I make a beeline for the cross. Every passage in the Bible in some way points us to Jesus. And wherever we look in the Bible, we see our need for him. You see, it really is all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about Jesus and your relationship with him. Oh, we've had a lot of fun over the years. We've got great memories. Go back 40 years, Gene. Got great memories. Done fun things together. But folks, the one thing that matters, out of all of it, the one thing that will last is your personal relationship with Jesus. If I haven't made that clear to you, I have failed you. If you haven't gotten at that point, I haven't gotten it across simply, clearly enough. But I want to thank you for allowing me to be a foolish preacher with a foolish message preached to a foolish church. Thank you for being fools for the gospel with me all these years. The second thing Paul talks about in this text it was his method. See, it's not just the message. It's the way the message is proclaimed. Paul's method was not to rely again upon his physical abilities, his emotional persuasion, even his spiritual powers and ability. Paul says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. What did Paul say? Weakness, fear, much trembling. Is, is that the image you have in your mind of the Apostle Paul? When you think of, of, of Paul, is that what comes to your mind? Someone who was weak, fearful, and trembling? We think of Paul as the great bold evangelist, don't we? The, the strong apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who f met face to face with the enemies of the cross and was willing to suffer whatever came because of it. Yet Paul presents a much different picture here, doesn't he? I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You see, when Paul was in Corinth, he faced significant resistance to his message. And that resistance came primarily from the Jews. They resisted and they blasphemed Paul so much in Corinth that the Bible says he literally shook out his garments to get the dust of Corinth off of them. And then he said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. And he went somewhere else. 
You see, it become very tense, very dangerous for Paul in Corinth. It was so tense and so dangerous that God came to him in a vision and he said, Paul, don't be afraid any longer. But you notice, he didn't say, now Paul, don't be afraid. He said, you don't be afraid any longer. That means Paul was already afraid, doesn't it? Paul was already afraid. He came to them in weakness and in fear and in great trembling. You know how encouraging that is to people like me. There's a sense in which every time I get up here to preach, it's with a sense of weakness and fear and trembling. People sometimes ask me, do you still get nervous before you preach? And my answer is, always. I hope it's a holy nervousness, but it's a true nervousness. A nervousness that comes from the importance of what I'm about to do but also a nervousness comes from my sense of my own inadequacy, my own weakness, my own fear. Sometimes my sense of weakness comes from my own sin. You know, when I stand before you to preach, I know my own heart. You see this. God sees this. And I know it's there. And sometimes... What I know is there is not very good. Sometimes when I come up here to preach, I ask myself, how in the world, how in the world can I get up there and proclaim the truth of God's word when my life is so out of accord with what it teaches, when my thoughts have been impure, when my attitude has not been right, when my words have been harsh or destructive, Yes, sometimes my own sin and my own personal failure can lead to that sense of weakness. Sometimes it comes from my own sense of frailty. You know, it really is amazing that I'm able to do this anyway. I've shared with you before that when I was a child, I had a severe stuttering problem. And the Lord either enabled me to outgrow it or overcome it there's still times when it just reaches up and grabs me. Times when my words just don't come out the way I intended for them to come out. And when I stumble over what I'm trying to say, and sometimes I wonder how in the world can someone who stumbles and fumbles over his words like I do be effective in communicating anything about the truth of the gospel to God's people. Sometimes my weakness comes from my own uncertainty about the message. I prepared, whether it deals, does justice to the text, whether it relates the truth of God in a meaningful way, whether it, there's really true application, meaningful application of the sermon to your life. I have enough sense to know that most, if not most all of my sermons are mediocre at best. And I wonder sometimes how a subpar message can do the job I can identify with Paul when he says in verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. They weren't. 
So where does our confidence come from? It comes from the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul said his method was to use his gifts and to trust God, the Holy Spirit, to take what he preached and apply it and use it in the lives of God's people. He knew he couldn't be effective on his own, that he couldn't save anyone on his own, that his message would fall flat. God didn't bless it. Effective preaching is just what Paul describes at the end of verse 4. It's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. If there's ever been any blessing, any fruit, any positive result from my preaching or from my ministry, it's because of that. Because of a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Know that God, the Holy Spirit, comes alongside and takes the message that I have delivered, no matter how poorly prepared or poorly delivered, and uses it effectively in your lives. Over the years, God has taken my plain, simple words and used them with effective power in your lives. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that God would use someone like me to impact the life of someone like you? Paul's method, and I hope my method, was to rely upon the power of God's Spirit for blessing and for success. And then third, Paul talks about his motive. Paul had a singular motive, and we see it in verse 5 where he says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's really the contrast Paul's been building all the way through this text, isn't it? Between the wisdom of God on the one hand, or wisdom of man on the one hand, the power of God on the other. If you have one, you can't have the other. Folks, the two are mutually exclusive. You're either going to trust in the wisdom of men, or you're going to depend upon the power of of God. If you build on one, you can't have the other. And ministries that are built on the wisdom of men do not last. That is, ministries built primarily upon human personalities do not last. Paul's concern was that the church be built upon the power of God alone. Now, we all have our own spiritual heroes. We all have people in our lives who have influenced us, taught us, instructed us, led us, and we, we look up to them. We're thankful for them. As many of you know, R.C. Sproul was one of my, my spiritual heroes. I learned so much from R.C., about theology and about the Bible and about preaching. Another of my spiritual heroes was Bill Stanway. You don't know him. Been dead for decades. Gene knows him. He taught me how to be a pastor. Tom Llewellyn was another of my spiritual heroes. He took an uncertain seminarian and loved me and encouraged me, and fed me, and guided me. It's okay to have people in your lives 
who have meant a lot to you and you kind of hold them in high esteem. But folks, we can't build our faith on them. We've got to build our faith on the power of God, not on the wisdom of men. Again, it goes back to the gospel, doesn't it? This power, this power of God, he says. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1 about the gospel? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is a divine message from God for the people of God. It's the message of Jesus and the message of salvation through his death and resurrection. Again, I want to thank you for putting up with me, foolish preacher. I'm thankful, folks. Look, I've been in three churches in almost 40 years. And every church I've pastored has had the right priority. And that priority was a focus upon the truth of God's Word. Folks, my people have always wanted to hear the truth. Look, there are a lot of preachers out there whose congregations don't want to hear the truth. If you turn over with me for a moment to 1 Timothy, I'm about through. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, Paul was writing to Timothy when he was just a young minister, <coughs> giving him exhortations. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. Excuse me, verse 4, chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul told Timothy this, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Paul's saying, look, you give attention to this. You make it your priority. You focus on it. The public reading of Scripture and exhorting and teaching from it. Go over to 2 Timothy. Chapter 4. Let's go ahead and start with verse 1. This is a solemn charge that Paul's giving to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the ju- to, be, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, do this, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You know, there are many churches, I said a moment ago, around the country who don't want to hear the truth of God's word. They want to hear everything but it. They don't want their pastors to preach only the Bible. They want to be entertained, told stories, made to feel good. Paul talks about that too in verse 3. For the time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Thank you so much for not being a church that wants to have your ears tickled by hearing things that make you feel good about yourself. Thank you for not being a church that just wanted to hear surface things but was willing to 
to go deeper into the truth of God's word that was hungry for it and desired to hear it. Thank you for being a congregation that didn't just want the milk of the word. Milk's for the little babies we got in our congregation. But thank you for wanting the meat, the solid meat of Holy Scripture. Thank you for looking beyond the messenger, excusing his foibles and mistakes so you could hear the message that was being proclaimed. If your life has been impacted at all by me or by my ministry, by my preaching, folks, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. It's all because of what God has done through me, not because of what I've done myself. It's because God has used a broken vessel to put broken lives together. It's because he's used a stumbling, bumbling preacher to communicate his truth to his people. And because he enabled me to appear to be strong when in fact, I was very weak. I leave you with Paul's words in Philippians 2. Now to him is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we dare hope for or expect in the church and in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. And I thank you for people who love to hear it. What a blessing it was to me to preach in McGee and Louisville and at North Point. Thank you for dear people, your people, who love you and who love your truth. Father, may it always be the case. For your glory we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.